I'm very excited to share this recording with you guys, which happened at our conference, sasopen.com, with over 100 speakers, all founders of B2B SaaS companies. We have a very high bar for what speakers share on stage, so you're going to enjoy this episode where we dive deep into revenue graphs, real tactics, and real growth metrics. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to getlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to getlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at getlatka.com. Thank you. Before I get started, um, WeSpars actually had a huge announcement that we made this morning that I wanted to share with all of you, which is that we became a certified B Corporation. It's been a very long process. We had to convert to being a public benefit corp and then go through a rigorous evaluation on environmental, um, social, and very apropos this week, governance factors and how we manage. Um, if you don't know what it is and you're interested in learning more, I'm around at lunch and can tell you because converting and becoming one is actually a great process. But now let's talk about psychological safety. Over the next 20 minutes, I am going to tell you what it is, why it matters. I'm going to share with you our own experience of measuring it, which means you're going to get to see some gory details of what our employees said made them feel safe or not in our workplace. And then we'll share what we have learned when we've done this with two other technology companies who are our clients. Much bigger companies, but still fascinating, uh, and things that you can take away from why you would want to start measuring this now to improve your culture and your performance. So first of all, just to give you a sense, we are about a $4 million ARR company. Uh, we started measuring when we were about a $2 million company. Um, it has been transformative in a lot of different ways. So. Let's start with first what it is, why it matters, and how you measure it. So Amy Edmondson is a professor from the Harvard Business School. She actually wrote about this in the Fearless Organization 20 plus years ago. But it didn't gain traction until this other little technology company decided to research what made for high-performing teams. This was called Project Aristotle. It is probably the most rigorous research that's ever been done on what causes high performance and what they found across Every hypothesis tested, over 200 hypotheses, thousands of people, is those teams at the highest levels of psychological safety were the highest performing teams. So it's not just something that is good for culture. It is also so good for culture, it's most predictive of performance. So what are the seven questions? This is actually open sourced now. And so these seven questions you could ask today and survey your employees on today. So the first one is people in this organization are able to bring up problems and tough issues. The second is it is safe to take a risk in this organization. The third is it's difficult to ask people for help in this organization and you have to strongly agree or strongly disagree. No one at the organization would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. Working with members of this organization, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized. If I make a mistake, it is often held against me. Or people in this organization sometimes reject others for being different. And so you're asking people to agree or not on, you can use a five-point Likert scale or a 10-point Likert scale. So I'm going to show you what happened when we did it. So first of all, 
The thing we were really strong on was not having people feel like they could bring their whole self to work. And it didn't matter their background, it didn't matter anything, they felt welcomed and they didn't feel like they were rejected. Our biggest weakness was that it was difficult to ask people for help. Now what's most interesting about this is obviously what do you do when you get this data, but it's really important to also ask for the verbatims around this. Because what I'm gonna show you are some quotes. So we did it on a 10 point scale so you see, we had a little couple outliers who were neutral on this question, but most people strongly agreed that, that they're not rejected for being different. Everyone is accepted. I haven't been in a scenario where I felt others rejected, every single place. But there are times I feel I don't fit in. You know, and so you can start to get this kind of information about, and sometimes what you get back is a little eye-opening. For example, look at the difference in the array. People are having a totally different experience depending on, on this factor around asking for help. And what it was, it's not difficult to ask for help, it's difficult to get answers in a timely manner. So it wasn't that people didn't ask, it's just that everyone's too busy to actually help much. Sometimes everyone is so busy and I don't want to burden others. And, it just, and then it falls aside. So how do you then address and create what we realized is we had needed to focus on creating a culture of more responsiveness, that it's not enough to say we're helpful if we don't actually respond effectively. And so it started setting KPIs around when somebody asks for help, managing expectations for when they can get back to them. It also, we had to look at some really hard things about staffing. The reality is Nathan loves our revenue per employee metric because it's off the charts, but that's probably because we're a little understaffed. And so we had to put more people in to be able to address some of these, these questions, particularly in customer success, because you can look at this by team. And it turned out that a lot of the folks who were not feeling supported were on the customer success team. So what did we decide to do? So in addition to what I just mentioned, some other things that we did more broadly um, I love that the prior speaker was talking about OKRs because for us, OKRs was the best way to implement prioritization. And I think that was the other thing we learned. When things aren't prioritized enough, everything feels important and then nobody knows what to necessarily get back to. So putting in the OKR framework has really helped with prioritization and what it's, you know, and putting requests in the context of OKRs. We actually um, decided, and we were small at this time, we were 25 people. One of our members of CS hand raised to say, I'll be our first director of people, culture, and impact. And so, you know, you don't normally have a full-time HR culture person in a company at 25. We decided to make that investment, that it was that important to tackle these things. Um, the other thing is that our team is really nice. <laughs> it's a great attribute, but sometimes they're too nice. And so one of the things that we had to teach people about is this concept called radical candor. And if you haven't done this training in your organization, I, our, it's a four box model, and what I would tell you is that top left is where we were. Ruinous empathy. <laughs> and that is when you, know, you are, are, have a high relationship, but not being honest with people when they've let you down, or disappointed you, or didn't get back to you, or things like that. And so trying to get folks to move over to the top box, where you can say, hey, that really bummed me out when you get back to me on this, that impacted my ability to do why and to be able to say that. All right, so then we did this with some others, bigger companies. Um, and so I'm gonna give you an example of a tech services firm that we worked with. 
So, um, and then I'll talk about the recommendations that have come out of working with ourselves and others about learning, processes and habits, and behavioral interventions, and then what you could do to measure, learn, and take action. So we did this at a tech services firm, and I was blown away by some of the comments that came back and what we identified. And the head of HR, who's one of the most progressive heads of HR on the planet, said this is the most important work we've ever done in HR because of what we identified. So we identified that there were habits and behaviors with how they socialize that dramatically hurt psychological safety around drinking, smoking, other things, always after work when other people need to be home because they have commitments with family or kids or elders. And so it was this culture of if you could drink, smoke, and hang out late, then you fit in. And if you didn't, you didn't. And they weren't offering any other paths towards that. When we looked at it through a gender, race, income, et cetera lens, women felt significantly less safe. And there were a whole slew of comments of what was happening. And it wasn't what I would call overt sexism. It was all the micro inequities and the microaggressions and things like that. There's an example quote right there. This company had been refusing to share their DNI metrics, and that was raised. Just the fact that they wouldn't share and other tech companies were. And so that was raised as something. And then one of the most powerful things, we were able to tell which teams had the highest scores and the lowest scores. So we knew which, which leaders to do interventions with. So what Dr. Evanson recommends when we do this is you frame it all as a learning problem, not an execution problem. And to acknowledge we all make mistakes around psychological We all say stupid things that we wish we didn't in the moment of being frustrated or rushed or things like that. That happens. And so acknowledging as a leader your own fallibility in this issue is really important. And then asking a lot of questions and modeling curiosity. If you've not watched her TED Talk on psychological safety, I highly recommend it. There's a link there. But what I would tell you that I think we identified is there's a lot more around psychological safety than around practices and procedures in a culture. And so you need to identify those practices, policies, or procedures that are impacting safety. Things like the informal socializing framework or even certain policies around or practices around what times meetings started and things like that. Um, recognize it's a behavioral problem. We all have to go back to kindergarten at some level for psychological safety. It's things like interrupting in meetings or not soliciting people's broad, um, asking people to speak up and just letting those who feel comfortable jumping in, jumping in. It's modeling just little micro behaviors. And then radical candor, this idea that it is okay to be direct with people and to criticize them when they let you down, but you've got to work on that relationship. But that being too nice is actually ruinous for a company. So what do you do next? First, just measure it. Just get out there and ask the questions and see what happens. But once you do recognize you're now on a journey of learning and listening, and that you have to take action, but you need to recognize that you're going to have to take action sometimes on things that are policy and practices first, as well as behaviors. And so over the last 20 minutes, what I think you've learned, hopefully, in this is that um, psychological safety is a powerful predictor of performance, and now you know the questions to ask and how to measure it. You've seen what happens when one company measures it, um, and the things that all of a sudden it forces you to reckon with, staffing, you know, behaviors, people, being too nice, being too aggressive, you know, those kinds of things. And then that it can apply in small companies like ours with 30 people. It can apply in one of the organizations we worked with has 400,000 400, employees around the world. So it scales. Um, and all I would encourage you to do 
is just get started. Thank you very much, and I'm open for any questions now. Thank you, Susan. Questions? Pardon? So interestingly enough, um, all of them were very progressive on remote first. The first company we did pre-COVID. The second company, we actually did it during COVID, which was fascinating. And, and one of the things that came up is, in fact, the culture had, because of COVID, actually worked much harder to connect people and to improve relationships to solicit voice of the employee and things like that. And so what actually came out in a lot of the ratings were some of the very positive things that were relatively new in the culture, particularly for remote employees. One of the things that was interesting about the second company is about 50% of the employees were international. So we looked at whether there were global differences in psychological safety and, and by country. And in fact, you could very much see differences in, in cultures. Um, but a lot of their hypotheses around where things were more safe or less safe were dead wrong. And we were able to, that's half the valuable work is ruling out things that in fact aren't predictive of psychological safety and identifying those things that are. Other questions? I'm gonna have, I have one. Oh, no. I, I just missed something you said. There was, you, you suggested a resource and I went to go type it and then I got sidetracked and forgot what you said. I don't remember, you said if you haven't done this yet, you should. Oh. Amy Edmondson, the professor from Harvard, did a TED talk about psychological safety. Oh, let's see. Oh, Radical Candor? Yes, the Radical Candor training. Yes, uh, she's amazing. Great book, too, if you haven't read it. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. You know, we're being held to operational efficiency in measuring the return on investment for anything that we do. So do you have any examples of how the CEO or CFO who brought this into their organization, how they measure the return on investment? Yeah, so the number one way that you can return, measure the return on investment for any investments in culture, but particularly psychological safety, is looking at how it changes the ability to attract and retain talent. And so you look at things like uh, your employee net promoter score and how that has changed. You look at how your time to hire is changing and you look at how retention is changing. And obviously, there's so many things that influence those factors, but one of the things that we're able to do, which I recognize is unique for our customers, is because we're running these inclusive culture programs on our platform, we're able to look at those employees who participated versus those who didn't and see the impact on retention and tell clients about it. So we're, we and our customers are unique in being able to do that, but you can, you know, if you use WeSpire, do that, or if you can, there's other ways to do that. You just need to, find the signal through the noise given so much can impact retention. And what's the frequency that you recommend for measuring that kind of employee satisfaction NPS? Is it quarterly? Is it annually? Yeah, so I'm a big believer that um, psychological safety shouldn't be measured more than annually because you need to work pretty consistently to get at the core drivers of psych safety. They're, they're, they're really important factors that can take time to influence. But I think your pulse survey, whatever your pulse question is, like employee net promoter or SAT or something like that, I would recognize, re recommend either running that monthly or doing, doing some sort of ad hoc, just in time, some segment of your workforce. So, um, so that 10% you know, of the workforce uh, gets asked at least once every 30 days or something like that. So you've got kind of a running metric around it. 
Thank you, Susan. Absolutely. Uh, another question here in the back. Any of that? Yeah, so the, um, we rely heavily on Google's research that shows that the highest performing teams were those teams with the highest levels of psychological safety. They've done the most rigorous, academically defensible connection between psych safety and, and overall performance. Um, so that's kind of the, the Bible of good HR metrics. In terms of what we've seen, Yes, you can implement psych safety as a team, even if the rest of the organization doesn't, and improve it to a point. But what you need to understand is what are the things outside the team that might be affecting psychological safety. And so one of the, um, one of the firms that we worked with is a professional services firm, and they got started in um, their it was called OLA, which is uh, legal, admin, things like that. And one of the big things that was impacting people's levels of psychological safety was just the way the sales team was treating them. You know? And so you could do all these things internally as the leader of this organization, but if the sales team is being aggressive and not particularly respectful and demanding and you know, in a way that's not appropriate, you've got to get that sales team to start changing behavior as well to see the next level of improvements. Any other questions? Okay, so Susan, thank you. thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause to Susan. <laughs> <laughs>